I'm so thrilled to have on Great Minds today a longtime friend, uh, Marianne Banakareem. Welcome, Marianne. It's great to have you on uh, Great Minds. Matt, it's so great to be on with you. So we're going to talk a lot about Nextdoor, um, which has become incredibly resonant in ways that none of us could have foreseen uh, just a short period of time ago. But I want to begin by going back to uh, 1979, when you and your family fled Iran and moved initially to Paris and then ultimately to California. What do you remember from that period? Roughly how old were you? Um, and what do you recall from the moment you were told we're leaving? Um, well, well, so we are going back. Um, so let's see. So in 1979, um, we lived in Iran. Fundamentalism took hold with a fury and a force that helped ignite the still impoverished masses in Iran. And I was in fifth grade. That was really the year the revolution broke out in a big way. The fabulous profits from oil had not filtered down to them. We lived in the, in sort of the suburbs near the palace, and so you would ride the bus, you know, passing through protests and whatnot. Residents, revolutionaries, soldiers, driving through the streets where there are no traffic jams, waving pistols, rifles, machine guns. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in, instance of wanting to run towards it. The crowd shouted, death to the Shah. There's this incredible sense of purpose that sort of becomes crystallized in these moments. I really did think I would be a journalist. Here in Iran, at the beginning of another week, students holding 50 hostages at the American embassy still give no sign of allowing an independent appraisal of their condition. At the government level, there is no serious sign of wanting to negotiate an end to the Iranian-American crisis. Today, Iran has moved one step closer to becoming a nation which will be run under the guidelines of Islam. And I, you know, I used to be really obsessed with sort of war photographers and war journalists, and I think there was this sense of um, heightened purpose that came to the fore, and I think I experienced that as a kid, right, which is probably why it was something I was always drawn to, because you really got to see what people were made of, right, sort of in those moments. I do think that how you show up in these moments become really defining um, pathways forward. The preoccupation in Tehran still seems to be over whether the Shah would leave Iran once a new civilian government is formed. From his exile in France, Khomeini was the chief fomenter, the mastermind, and eventually the inheritor of Iran's Islamic revolution. The Shah secluded himself in his palace, surrounded only by friends. We moved first to Paris because I think, um, you know, Iran has a history of things changing and then reverting back, which we'd had in the 50s um, when Mossadegh had taken over and then he'd been overthrown by the CIA. So there was a sense of like, was this really going to stick? And so we went to Paris and I think my parents really had no idea whether um, we were going for a couple of weeks or forever. Um, we went really as if we were going on vacation. We didn't even take my younger sister, who at the time was three. So then we moved to Northern California and they they ended up picking this little town called Lafayette, California, which is in the East Bay, which is sort of this lily white suburb. 
And I think the thought was, okay, we were either going to live in San Francisco and they were going to send me and my sister to the Lycee, or we would live in the suburbs. And I think my parents really just wanted us to matriculate, right? So we ended up in this very um, sort of cloistered, lily white suburb of San Francisco. And somehow my parents decided that, oh, they were going to then start a French bakery. Really based on this, like, you know, six-week class that my mom had taken at um, at the Cordon Bleu when we were in Paris. And looking back now, I think, like, um, what made them think that that was something to do? I have no idea. But basically, they end up opening the first French bakery, and it was called Le Croissant. And so in, in junior high, in essence, I got to work um, making cappuccinos um, at Le Croissant, which... Um, you know, all good Iranians should open up French bakeries, apparently, when they have no experience um, in that. And how did the store do? It did well, and they ended up selling it. So, um, you know, I now look back and, you know, it's funny, I've had a chance to reflect on this in the last couple of years, especially when I got to take a little time off. And, you know, I think people say to me, like, why do you think you can do one thing and then just move on and do another thing? And And then I sort of was retelling the story, and I was like, in some ways, it was like in my DNA, right? Because why did my parents think they could do that? Um, when, you know, people talk about wanting to own a restaurant and everyone always tells you um, about, you know, the failure rate, right? And it just never even occurred to them. They just went and did it. And, you know, they were willing to put in the hard work. And so I remember um, for a couple of months, she actually went and worked in a bakery in Berkeley just to get the chops of knowing what that was like. Um, they didn't have the fear of failure in the way that most of us, have, right? And so I think that was kind of the thing that I've now remarked on, right? And I think, by the way, when you immigrate, right, and we were definitely immigrants in that sense, um, you know, it's sort of like sink or swim. And so that's what they did. You have this this incredibly rare blend of attributes in that you are and you've been recognized for it. We'll talk about some of that as an incredibly innovative and disruptive thinker. You've had an incredible variety of really high-profile gigs, all that have taken you all over the world. And you have incredible kindness um, and all that sort of wrapped in ambition in all the good ways and all the good things that ambition means. Did that come from within you did you know that, that those attributes would, you know, where did that drive come from, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask you. You know what, I think um, I grew up in a house where there were no boundaries, right? Even though I was a girl and most people think, oh, you know, women in Iran, women in Iran are actually quite forceful and strong, right? And I grew up in a house where my grandmother worked and, I mean, she never sits still, Um even years later, right, she came and stayed with us when we were living in Lafayette, she would like take English as a second language, like at the local church, right? And this is my grandmother who immigrated from Russia to Iran, and then made her way, you know, years ago, and lived really through two revolutions and spoke Turkish. And she just she was sort of just like the energizer bunny. And so people always say, Oh, you take after your grandmother. Um, I think there was just this incredible sense of like, go do and to this day, my, you know, I always thought I would be a journalist. And um, <laughs> like my mom always says, it's never too late. You can still be Oprah. And I'm always like rolling my eyes, like, really, mom? Um, but that sense of like anything was possible for you, as annoying as it was on some level as a kid, 
it also sort of propelled you to think that, you know, to sort of not limit your boundaries. So first gig, was that Young and Rubicam or was there something in between? Yeah, yeah. First, first gig after graduate school was Young and Rubicam. And what do you remember from that very first day of work? I guess they were then still on Madison Avenue back then. Yeah, they were at um, 420 Madison Avenue. Um, at the time, YNR was one of the few ad agencies that recruited at business schools. And that's how I ended up there. Um, you know, it was in the very early days of the internet. Um, it's hard for many people to remember this, but um, the year that I was at YNR, the internet sort of came into the fore, right? There were still DVDs and CD-ROMs and Prodigy and CompuServe, and people weren't sure if it was going to be AOL or CompuServe that was going to survive. And I remember Michael Schrag writing an article for Wired called Is Advertising Dead? And I was a super curious person, and I had a lot of energy, so I used to go to lots of lectures after work. And I went to um, Peggy, who ran account management, and I said, there's this interesting article that Michael Schrag wrote. It says, is advertising dead? It strikes me that's a worthy conversation. Should we not bring the agency together and discuss this topic? And she said, go for it. And so me and another um, account executive, Susie Gluck, um, basically coordinated the first agency-wide panel for um, YNR New York. And we brought in Bob Greenberg and um, Michael Schrag and somebody from AT&T Ventures and my husband, my now husband at the time, who ran um, electronic publishing at Time um, Warner. And we basically, and, and a guy named Su, um, Lu Yen Cho, who did um, these beautiful um, CD-ROMs. So we had a conversation about what was advertising, in fact, dead or not. And... Um, it's crazy looking back now um, at that moment. But that was sort of the moment at which sort of digital began to be a real thing. And in a lot of ways, YNR was having sort of some financial troubles and they were in the midst of turning themselves around. But thinking about the future of, you know, the internet was not something that was at the forefront of their agenda. Um, and it was interesting to, to see how a big corporation sort of responded to those kinds of changes, right? They wanted to seem digital to their clients, but they weren't super interested in actually like investing the resources and probably because they didn't have the extra cash to do it. Um, but yeah, that was my early, early foray into the advertising world. And I loved working at YNR because they did actually um, have this pathway for graduate students. And so they rotated you quite um, frequently. And so I love the breath, right? It's like being a reporter. You got to work on People Magazine once, then Xerox, then General Foods International Coffee. And I just loved like getting in the weeds in somebody else's thing and, and problem solving. And, and I think their reputation at that time was that there was just a really great culture. And, and now all these years later, it seems like they really, really, you know, developed an awful lot of talent. Did you feel that strong culture when you were there? Yeah, I mean, they invested in people, right? They had, the, the program was a perfect example of that. They actually recruited business school students. They had a lot of um, mentoring and programming to bring you along. And then, um, you know, Kim Beal was my mentor, right? Like we had a mentoring program and they really took investing in their people um, seriously, which is, I think, why they're such an incredible alumni network out of YNR. Yeah, amazing. So after YNR, where did we go? So, um, you know, after YNR, I ended up going to work at the time I was at YNR. I hadn't met him at the time, but Steve Heyer had come in to help turn YNR around. And he um, left with another woman named Holly Arnowitz to go to Turner Broadcasting. And um, it's a long story, but I ended up going to work for Holly and Steve at Turner. Um, and, it, you know, it, 
that's sort of how my career in media ended up starting. And Steve had a, a great reputation. I met him years ago because I had written the bid that brought the Goodwill Games to New York. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, of course. In 1998, course. and that yeah. was that was an incredibly deep bench of talent that worked at Turner. And was Joe Yuva there as well at that time? Yeah, yeah. Joe Yuva was at CNN at the time. So um, this was like 94, 95, right? right? Still in the early days of the internet. And um, Steve had done a lot of work when he'd been a consultant for Ted and Ted brought him in to reimagine sales um, in the cable business, right? And so Steve really was a brilliant strategic thinker. And um, he basically started the first ever integrated marketing group within media, right? And so he basically brought this idea of consultative selling to the media business in that window. And so he basically hired a group of people who we were considered like account planners. And we would do a lot of homework the way a consultancy would do on a client. And we would look through the lens of brand. And then we would look at the Turner assets and say, okay, if you're Nike and you're about the authentic athlete, what are the things within the Turner portfolio that I can bring to bear to move the needle for you? Um, and I credit Steve with, um, with really transforming my career because that discipline um, has served me in many, many jobs and, and does today, right? So short decks, thinking about the client, putting them first, looking through the lens of brand, that really changed the business. Um, and that really was an invention of Steve's. had an incredible series of gigs and at each one there was a situation it was either a turnaround or a transformation a growth opportunity and I don't know anybody who's still you know pretty young in their career and and I certainly consider you to be young in your career who has had literally one hit after another between your tenures at Gannett and NBCU and Hyatt you know did you see yourself, do you see yourself as a hit maker or do you just see yourself as someone who's, you know, you sort of have that Clive Davis golden touch. Do you see yourself that way or can you not see that? Honestly, I see myself mostly as uh, my family makes lots of fun of me. It's like, I have a lot of these Forrest Gump moments, which is like, how did I get here? I mean, I remember my first week at Hyatt, um, my CEO took me with him as his plus one to the um, alfalfa dinner. I didn't even know what the heck the alfalfa dinner was. And I remember going there, looking around this room of, you know, incredibly powerful um, people. And I remember being like, how did a little girl from Iran get into this room? Right. I, I have that moment a lot. Um so, you know, did I know that I was going to be, a, I mean, I, I never really planned to, it's not like I had that thought of like, oh, I'm going to be a CMO. Um, for me, it was just like, here's the opportunity. I, I jumped in and I ran at it hard, right? And so I was really motivated by having impact. Like, can I learn things? Can I have impact? And do I get to work with people I respect? Those are sort of my trifecta. And, and I care about what I work on, right? So for me, it can't just be a widget. I actually have to believe in the mission and the purpose because- you know, if you're going to be all in, you got to care. And for me, that was really the the driving force. Um, you know, none of us are perfect. A lot of your success is as a result of all the people you get to work with. And, you know, um, you make mistakes. And, you know, do you think of yourself as successful? I think um, that's a, that thought never occurs to me. You know, I only see all the things I can't do. And my, my, 
my husband always makes a joke. He's like, yes, because you constantly compare yourself to Michael Jordan. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> listen, if you're going to compare yourself to someone, that's not that's not a bad choice. But these jobs, I mean, you were the first ever CMO at Gannett. And at Hyatt, and it, it's worth saying, you were the global CMO of Hyatt. I mean, that's an awfully big gig. You know, it was so funny. Again, like I, I never really thought about it that way, right? For me, it was about like just solving the problem. Um, and really being a partner to the CEO and the executive team, right? And I think um, the moment, I think for me, the high thing that was super interesting, right? Like I grew up as a, as a global nomad, and yet a lot of my jobs were primarily in the US up until that Hyatt job. And I remember showing up in, in Dubai and, um, you know, being checked into the hotel by the team. And the women were so excited and they wanted to take a selfie together, and I remember I called my family and I said, it was so crazy because, you know, they were so excited to take this selfie. And you realize, right? I mean, I'm from the Middle East. It's like um, women in, in, you know, at the top of the organization, like that's just not the thing that they always see, right? So they were super excited about that. And I, we do stand on the shoulders, right? And so you, I, I 100% believe you can't be what you can't see, right? And so that was sort of the moment where I was like, you actually have to be conscious of that, right? Because we do create pathways for each other and a hundred percent, this is about um, just role modeling for each other. Right. And for me, a lot of that's also about just being authentic about how it's not easy. It's difficult. And, you know, juggling a family and I don't want to make it seem like a, you know, it's like this neat bow tied experience. It's like I share the mess because otherwise it seems insurmountable and hard to imagine. Right. And so, um, you know, that job was a great job and I loved that job. And, um, we, as a team, we got to do great work. Um, and as a management team and really, but the thing that you began to realize is like, you had a responsibility to sort of pathway for other people. Right. So you've become a, a great mind and you've been recognized by, you know, great authorities that command the highest degree of respect. I mean, not everybody makes the Fast Company top 10 disruptors list, you know, just to name one of the many honors that you've received. And I, I love that you were a recipient of the Ellis Island um, Medal of Honor. My grandfather came to our country through Ellis Island many years ago. And it's a very soft spot for me. Who were the great minds looking back early in your career who really influenced you when you look back, you know, at that first phase of your career, starting at Y&R and then moving on to Turner? You mentioned Steve Heyer, but what were the other great minds that really helped shape and influence you? Well, so, I mean, definitely at Y&R, Kim Beale was a great mentor, and I had the great fortune of working for lots of people, but Shelly Diamond, who I got to work for on Xerox, was amazing. Um, Mark Messing, who I got to work on, People Magazine. I mean, there were so many. Barry Hoffman, the creative director. You know, people took you under their wings and showed you the way. In fact, one of my first bosses was um, Liz um, McKee, now Liz Zay, and I remember when she sent me on my first sort of... Um, task where I had to go by myself to like a printing press where we were printing all these things for clue. She really like walked me through the mechanics to make sure that I succeeded. And people who took the time to really do that or were really remarkable early in your career. I think, um, you know, clearly Steve was a seminal um, force in my career because really strategic selling and that integration sort of came naturally to me, but that's really where I learned that art. Um, I then got to go to City Search and, you know, that team in the early days of the internet where 
you know, you were trying to figure out scale and it was sort of like the wild, wild west was an amazing experience and learning from, from them to working in book publishing. I mean, you know, the truth is I've had a lot of different jobs and I think you learn from every single one. Right. And, um, that's, that's sort of the, um, additive effect, right. Of trying lots of these different things that gets you, but you know, I had a great run at NBC Universal. I really liked working for Jeff and Lauren, and there were so many really talented people actually at NBC Universal. At Univision, it was—I mean, it was honestly a gift to work for Jerry Parencio and um, working in the Hispanic community when, for the most part, people weren't really focused on it. And recognizing what a huge opportunity that was that people couldn't see was so incredibly. Um, inspiring, honestly, and people were so committed to the community. And from the um, Maria Elena's to the Jorge Ramos's to Lena, who ran the network, I mean, people believed. And so you believe too, right? And I think so every job has had that. Um, I really loved working for Gracia Martori and um, being part of that executive team at Gannett. Um, they also care deeply about the news business, right? So every, every job sort of has that. Maybe this is just age. I'm 55 and, and I look back, you know, at people like Al Newharth and people like Ted Turner. We had uh, Ken Alette on Great Minds and we were talking about, you know, some of the people that he you know, remembers most fondly from all the books that he's written and everything he's done for The New Yorker. And he told some great stories about Ted. Well, I must say, I, the, the profile I did in 2001 of Ted Turner mm-hmm. was one of the more enthralling experiences I had. The news, 24 hours every day. The Cable News let's, Network. Let's get it out of the and he was impulsive, and he sometimes made crazy decisions. Okay, good. You're probably with CBS, aren't you? There, there you go. The only person that raised his hand there was the president of Warner Brothers that makes that crummy program. But he was a man who... who had this idea to start CNN and backed it up. I feel like our industry today has less of those personalities, or is that just, you know, uh, am I wrong about that? You know, I mean, working for Jerry Prancho was a gift. Uh, Honestly, um, the thing that was fascinating about Jerry was he was a self-made Italian-American from Fresno, and he's a name a lot of people don't know because he actually refused to give interviews. he believed that the press faded your suit. Now he invented pay-per-view. He did the Bobby Riggs, Billy Jean match. He was Norman Lear's partner. You know, he bought Univision at a time where people had no idea what the Hispanic market was and sold it to, um, you know, a group of private equity firms for almost, you know, a crazy amount of money. Um, you know, he was the man with the Midas touch. And I think, um, Jerry had these real rules of the road and he really lived by them and he brought people along the journey with him and he was very loyal. And I think, working for Jerry as, as demanding as he was, was a gift. And that also was a very transformative thing for me. Um, do I think that there are great leaders still? I, I do. I, I really do. I think, you know, one of the things I realized, particularly because I, um, after I left Hyatt, I decided to take a pause and I took some time off. Was it, it like, for me, it matters to, to be engaged. My sister always says, it doesn't matter how much money you make, you, you will always be working. And, and that's true for me. I, I actually get joy out of working. Um, again, I have to do something that I care about. And my husband says, it's almost like um, being an artist for me. Like I could spend hours working on a presentation that I'm doing. I, I like, you know, in the way that somebody probably paints, right? Um, I, I love sort of that narrative and, and being able to tell that story. And I think there are other people. And I think if you want to keep going, 
um, you have to work the age spectrum, right? It's like one of the amazing things about working at next door is, um, working with, you know, people in their twenties. Right. And so when you work at these big companies and you get to the, to the top, it becomes increasingly sort of like, um, of a certain age. Right. And I think one of the great things about working at a startup is you get to like be in it again with a pretty wide group of people and you learn from everybody. I'm incredibly inspired by the people I get to work with at next door. Right. And, um, a lot of them are much younger, right? Because they're earlier in their career. And I think that it was this conscious moment where I had this, when I showed up in my first couple of weeks and I was like, you know, these are people who are not looking to retire and sort of now do the board thing. These are people who have a lot more to still go. Right. And I think if you broaden your lens, there's a lot of people doing really interesting things. I had the great opportunity actually, um, in my sort of pause of doing a lot of moderation. And I got to meet some really interesting people from a young kid who's figuring out how to do um, blood drops through robots in Africa to this kid um, who basically has, I mean, he's not really a kid anymore because I guess he's in his twenties, but he basically invented sort of 3D printing of um, prosthetic arms, right? That he can make for $4,000 versus the industry making them for 60 or 80. Like there's a lot of people doing really amazing, interesting things. If you choose to to look. So let's talk about Nextdoor. You, how did they find you? How did you find them? How did it happen? Um, you know, I actually, it's funny. I was at a, um, uh, I sit on the impact council for Stephanie at, um, fast company. And, um, I do love that community. And I was at an event for her and I ran into Jana Rich, um, who is a great, um, headhunter out of uh, San Francisco. And we, Jan and I know each other. And she said to me over dinner, would you consider this role? And I said, you know what, I just moved the family back to New York and I'm pretty committed to New York. So I'm not going to be looking to relocate. She said, you know, it's funny, they've been looking for a while and they actually have decided that they would be open to having somebody in New York. And so I said, um, that I would have the conversation and I was actually going to California anyway for a board meeting for Samsung. And so I, um, agreed to have, um, you know, to, to go have the conversation. Um, and honestly, the more I engaged, the more interested I became. And I think, again, for me, I wasn't so sure I was going to go back in. And I would say to people, I'm looking for a place where I can have an impact, where I can learn, where I can work with people I respect and where I inherently care about the product. Um, and the more I engaged, the more it was clear that there was that and, opportunity. And tell me about Sarah Fryer. I've heard incredible things about her, but what are your impressions, the next door CEO? Um, so, you know, I didn't really know of Sarah until I started, um, you know, obviously engaging and doing my homework. I think Sarah, you know, um, she's incredibly passionate and committed. Um, and for her, this is not, you know, this is also a, a purpose-driven project, right? She believes in the inherent um, good that neighborhoods can do for people. I think she comes from um, sort of a small town in Ireland where she had neighbors that really were instrumental in her life. I think um, that really, I hear that from people at the company a lot. And, you know, obviously she did a lot of work around small businesses when she was at Square and local businesses are, are a critical component of Nextdoor's experience because really um, Nextdoor is where you turn to understand what's going on in your neighborhood. And your neighborhood is composed of your neighbors, the local businesses, the national businesses, 
the public agencies, right? It's sort of that touch point. And I think um, we all inherently believe in the purpose of the company, which is, you know, about engendering kindness and neighbors you can rely on and neighborhoods you can rely on, right? And so she 100% believes that. And I think um, it was one of the reasons that, um, you know, 100%, she was one of the reasons that made this job interesting. Um, of course, I call people who knew her and, you know, everybody said she was the real deal. And, you know, if you're going to go all in, you want to go in all in for somebody who actually um, is that person. So talk about the overall mission just a little further and how in this uh, incredible age that we are all living through of, of Corona, how in, I guess you've sort of been inadvertently elevated. Yeah. Um, and, and programs like Good Neighbor, which I'd love to hear more about. Yeah. I mean, I think what happened is, um, you know, I started the job and I was just trying to get up to speed and then, you know, obviously, um, COVID showed up. Um, and it's like all of a sudden you're living your purpose, right? Because getting today proximity is key, especially as you lock down and you're trying not to leave your home. That was until she turned to technology. I saw a message on the Nextdoor app for people who wanted to give help or who needed help, and I said that I could use some help. We're all learning new ways of living as we socially isolate. Just blocks from Foreman's Chelsea apartment, Marianne Benacarum saw the post on the neighborhood networking app and started a group chat with her West Village neighbors. The response was immediate. It's been incredible. I had 90 people sign up almost um, in 24 hours, right? And I have to tell you, like, it makes you love your neighborhood. Messages poured in for those in need. Residents offering to run errands, give rides, or, in Foreman's case, stock their fridge with groceries. Um, the people who are going to come to your aid in times of crisis tend to be the people who are closest to you, right? Which may not be your family or even your friends. And so knowing your neighbors and having access to them becomes a critical thing. And I think inherent to next door is the idea of trust because we verify members. They can't just be a bot. They actually have to be physically um, in that neighborhood. And what you see is really your immediate neighborhood and possibly sort of a wider lens. So a perfect example is me. I live in Chelsea. I see my Chelsea neighborhood, but I also sort of see the village. Um, and what was amazing in my first couple of weeks, I remember, um, you know, people used to say, oh, well, New Yorkers, they, they're not going to get on the platform in the same way that people do like in California or, you know, in Texas or even in Brooklyn. And I remember this woman posted, she said, I'm just looking for new friends. And she said, I'm 50. I'm a producer. Um, I'm Brazilian. And I just want to meet some new people. And, you know, it gets harder. And literally she had 140 comments with people saying, here's my number. Finally, this team actually gathered. Um, and had coffee on a Thursday at Le Midi and po posted a picture of themselves. And they were supposed to gather again on um, April 1st. And that kindness was inherent in the platform. And then when COVID happened, it went into overdrive, right? So the number of people who started posting saying, because, you know, it became an issue for people to actually get groceries if they were homebound, um, you know, getting access to their medicine. I mean, some people would reach out and be like, my mother is on this platform and I'm posting for her because she's really lonely and I'm worried about her and I'm across the country. So the number of people who were showing up on the platform, raising their hand to help was really, really remarkable. Right. And so 
I think for us, the first place we started mobilizing was with the public agencies, with the World Health Organization and the CDC, because we wanted to make sure we were getting you hyper-relevant information from trusted sources. Um, we're not the source of the information, but we're the conduit to make sure you're getting that right information. And it's one of the reasons a lot of the governors have come on the platform. And globally, um, the Catalan government, the French government, the NHS, to make sure that hyper-local information that's relevant um, and trusted is getting into neighbors' hands, right? And so first we started working with them, and then we started focusing on how to enable neighbors to better connect with each other. So we started enabling this um, group functionality. So for example, for me, people started posting, but it required you to go back into the feed to find them. And so I was able to use our um, group functionality and set up a neighbor helping neighbors group, where basically you can go into there and find anybody and raise your hand and say, hey, I'm able-bodied, I'm happy to run errands, or hey, I need some something. Um, and in fact, um, one of the people who reached out to me after I set up the group was a woman who just needed to figure out how to post. She was posting on Nextdoor using her phone, and um, she was an older lady, and she needed some help figuring out some of the functionality. But honestly, um, that was a two-minute question, and we stayed on the phone for an hour, really because she just wanted to talk to somebody, right? Particularly when you're so isolated and you can't leave your your house. Sometimes just human contact is all you need. But we're seeing all kinds of things show up from people posting and saying, my son has a birthday and now he can't gather with his friends. Would you mind driving by and honking um, to a couple who recently actually used Nextdoor as a way to gather people and um, help them um, get married, right? Like you're, you're seeing, you know, people posting saying like the hospital needs masks to can you show me, you know, can anybody link me to a place where I can figure out how to sew my own mask? Um, it's just been remarkable, right? And so I think that's where you're seeing the platform really shine. And tell us about the Good Neighbor program that you launched, I think, in London. Yeah, I mean, so the Good Neighbor program was something that they'd been doing, right? I mean, there are pe there are people who actually do a lot to help neighbors, and we try and celebrate them because – um, you know, that's behavior everybody wants to see more of. And so we sort of um, run a program where people get to nominate people. In fact, I had a chance um, at one of our events to, to, to meet some of these good neighbors. But there was a woman who um, in Ireland was basically arranging sort of a neighbor's table where people would gather. I mean, there's so many of these stories. And I think the good neighbor program is really about surfacing these and then celebrating them, right? And so, um, there's a gentleman who started a father's group. I mean, there's there's so many of these. It's actually um, you, you just don't hear about them unless you're you're seeing them in your in your actual neighborhood. Um, and so I think part of the reason that I joined is my job is to figure out how do I actually surface these stories on a national and global um, scale so that we all feel great, right? Because we're going to come out of this um, pandemic onto the other side, and we want hope. And we want a feeling of belonging and being in it together because that's what's going to get us to the other side. And I think that's what makes the platform so powerful, honestly. You know, before I knew you had joined them, we had met with some of your team in London. We had a nice lunch. It was my last trip to London uh, probably about <laughs> two, three months ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was at that lunch that I learned uh, that you were jo about to join. And, uh, and I was struck by you know, that you seem to have hit the sweet spot between digital and I'll use the word experiential, but what I'm really saying is that inherent human need to connect with each other. And I think it's an incredibly exciting opportunity that you have now. Uh, honestly, it's like, um, you know, um, 
I, I took the job and then four weeks in, I was like, oh my God, th- this is like the, the craziest sort of possibility that, that could have come together, right? Because I, I do think inherently um, we're this rare company that transcends its utility, right? To actually get you to become a community with those that are closest to you. Um, and it's about neighbors, it's about businesses, it's about public agencies, it's, it's about everybody who's in your neighborhood, right? And um, I think that's been the thing that's been remarkable and honestly energizing for the entire team because we've all literally been working around the clock. And I think what motivates everybody is making a difference for neighborhoods, right? And that's what gets everybody um, to show up, right? I mean, I think my favorite thing about work from home is it just means that I don't know when a Saturday is and when a Monday is and what time of the day it is. I think my family's like, do you think you could just get off a of Google Hangout and be present? Um because there is this incredible sense of urgency to try and help people. Um, and a moment that really need is what is, is the critical thing. Right. And I, I, I say this to marketers, right. Cause I, I obviously I've been a CMO uh, repeatedly. So I've had, um, I have a pretty good network of friends and I say like today it's about not just showing up. It's about showing up and solving a real need. That is what people are going to remember in the long term, Right. It's about recognizing the need and acting. And I think brands, just like businesses, are made in times of crisis. You've been engaged in the business of business and purpose way before it became in vogue. And, and, you know, suddenly it's like I love when people talk in the sports and entertainment business about branded content as if it's a new thing. You know, branded content has been around you know, since the Dodgers played in Brooklyn and the outfield wall was filled, you know, with ads. And there was one with you, you know, you hit a, a particular spot on the wall. It was a tailor. And if you hit the wall here, you win a free suit, you know. And so branded content has been around, you know, 70, 80 years, going back to the soap operas and, and you know, Procter & Gamble. Business and purpose suddenly has become, you know, very popular, but you've been yeah. doing it for a pretty darn long time. What's your take on the sudden consciousness of business that they are indeed part of a community and have an obligation and an opportunity to make their local communities better? Well, you know, Joseph Campbell says there's only seven stories. So I think um, to your point, branded content existed and so did purpose, right? I think I I was fortunate when I was at Columbia, I took a class with Edmer Deming, who at the time I think was in his eighties. And he talked about um, understanding the lens through which you thought about your business and broadening that lens, which I think is really what purpose is about. It's like, what's the North star and how do you think strategically about your business with a broad versus a narrow lens? Um, and honestly, I thank Jerry Parencio for, um, introducing me to purpose. We actually, um, went to go see Roy Spence at GSCNM because somebody had recommended, um, Roy to Jerry and Roy said to us at the time, and this was at Univision, he said, I don't want to do your ads. I want to figure out your purpose. And Univision was very much a purpose-driven organization, right? Because you were, um, really advocating for a community. And so that's really where I got my first, um, foray into purpose in that, you know, with that language, which really was tied to Jim Collins and all his work around good to great. Um, and so it's true. I've had the opportunity to do purpose work at four jobs. And I think this might be my fifth. Um, so, but I think at the core purpose was something I cared about, right? Like that idea of starting with why, um, 
it's so important, particularly now. Like, why do we need to do this? Why do I, somebody need to see my ad on a Super Bowl spot? Um, why should we make this business decision? And understanding what things ladder up to um, in times of crisis is even more critical, right? And so I think it's it's become in vogue for the last, I don't know, five or six years, but I think people who do it authentically um, have been doing it. Purpose is about uncovering your DNA. You can't manufacture it, right? And so um, it's really about understanding what purpose means, the difference between purpose and brand, because purpose is not about marketing. I mean, us marketers know how to pull it through, but it's really about your business strategy, right? And your vision for the difference you're trying to make in the world. And so um, it'll come in vogue. People will use it as a as a as a way to package themselves, but really the ones who um, thrive and succeed are the ones who actually live it, right? And I think, um, listen, I th- the thing that's been fascinating about Nextdoor is that it started because somebody read an article about the Pew Research that said people increasingly did not know their neighbors. That was the premise under which the company was was formed. And we're now living at a time where that idea and proximity couldn't be more relevant, um, and there's so much data that shows that we're feeling more isolated, more lonely. And if you know your neighbors, um, I think um, one of the researchers calls them weak thigh, weak ties, not your best friend. But, you know, if you know the name of the guy in your coffee shop, like it actually changes your outlook on life. Um, it makes you happier and healthier. And by the way, Matt, you're somebody who's very much of a connector. Um, and I think as a kid, I sort of understood understood the importance. Of, like for me, people was a thing. And being useful and feeling connected makes me feel better, right? I think um, it's it's probably not coincidental that these things all come together in the end. Yeah, I think one of the things I learned from my mom very early was you always ask people what their name is. You don't just go into a store and, you know, or whatever you're doing and you know, I'll always, as a matter of course, and my kids make fun of me, but I'll, I'll say, you know, excuse me, what I didn't, what was your name? And I think when you address someone by name, as opposed to just blank or not at all, there's a different, something happens when you know someone's name, when you can say, hi, Susan, or hi, Mark, or thank you for that. You know, I mean, I think the new heroes of our world among many are these people that are working today, you know, in the supermarkets, in, in the pharmacies, and to be able to thank them by name it makes them feel a little more special. And I guess knowing people's names and knowing your neighbors are, you know, first cousins of each other. You know, it's funny. I had a chance to meet with um, the CEO of Dale Carnegie in my time off. And, you know, um, you go back to that book, How to Win Friends, um, you know, which was really seminal in um, like Warren Buffett's life and in so many others. And a lot of it is just about that, Matt, like knowing somebody's name and being respectful, right, is like, uh, it's a baseline. Today, I ended up leaving the house to go um, to go grocery shopping first thing. And it's stressful. You know, everyone's wearing a mask. And, you know, I said to the woman behind the um, checkout, because like you, I find myself, I show up and I'm literally like thanking people left, right and letter center, because I recognize that it's a pressure point to actually have to show up to work. Right. And so I said to her, you know, how are you doing? I mean, how's it going? And then I said, and by the way, what's your name? I show up here and I don't know your name, right? And just that moment of humanity, um, despite this environment, like that's the deal, right? And so for a moment, she wasn't just the person behind the checkout. She was telling me about, you know, her cousin who had just been diagnosed, who she hadn't seen since Christmas and somebody else in her family who is an 11 year old and the long hours she's working, 
like we're all human. And, you know, I inherently believe that that's what matters and that's what connects us as a society. I used to think that going to a DMV was the great equalizer. I think my definition now and how I view uh, the great equalizer has changed because if there's one thing that we know, um, this has connected us in ways as a planet that I think none of us could have imagined. And, And I hope at the end, and there will be an end that we come out a little bit better for it, uh, despite the you know gravity and enormity of, of the tragedy that we're living through. Do you think that can happen, Maryam? Do you think that we can come out of this as a human race with a little more humanity, a little more humility, and a little better connected? Listen, I'm an optimist, so my answer is 100%. I mean, look, um, you look through history, and history is a great... Um, view to look at the world in, like we will get, I say to my kids, like there have been terrible things that have happened before and we will get to the other side. And I am also a hundred percent sure how we behave in this moment will be, you know, really normative in terms of how we come out. So it does matter. And I do think that it will be a new normal. It will not be back to normal. And what that new normal is, um, we're going to see, but I am hopeful. I do think um, listen, I'm connected to all kinds of people in my community um, through next door in Chelsea and in the village. And I really am looking forward to the day where I can actually see them in person. Right. And I think that that's that's going to be the thing for, for me when I moved to Chelsea 20 years ago um, and my family makes immense fun of me. One of the first things I did, I had I had two little kids at the time. Um, was I joined the Neighborhood Block Association and I volunteered to be the secretary, right? I inherently believe that you have to care and you have to be willing to put the work in. And I think people are seeing that that matters, right? And I think we don't need to be lonely in a box just living with um, friends on social media. We actually can connect virtually and then meet in person because it does make a difference. And I think one of the things about being back in Chelsea after having um, come back from Chicago is I had the good fortune of um, becoming friends with Joan, who's in her 80s and shows up at Joe's coffee shop on a regular basis. And um, Joan had a had a sort of open house at um, the day after Christmas. And everybody you met at her house, you said, how do you know Joan? And it was like through Joe's. Right. And all of us are now connected on next door and we, we share stories and we check on Joan and Bob and and on each other. Right. And um, that's what's going to that's going to be the thing that's going to define us. And I am 100 percent hopeful. Oh, you and me both. You know, you, you, I'm so uh, uh, just sort of humbled to be, you know, in your sphere. And um, I love what you're doing. I love your passion. I love that you take your team with you wherever you go. I think you're incredibly loyal and you deliver the goods and uh, really personify, I think, the very essence of the kinds of people we're trying to feature here on Great Minds. So thank you so much for spending this time. And uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for actually having me. It was lovely to get to have a full hour of getting to speak to you in the middle of all this. Well, this was great. This was great. And we will great. stay close. Thanks again, Matt. It was really nice all to right. talk to you. You too, Miriam. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.